Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight, we bring you episode number 52, Whiplash. But before we get started, just a few housekeeping notes. Uh, the website has now been updated. You can see the links in the show notes. Again, just click on the episode itself in whichever podcast browser that you're using, Spotify, iTunes, etc., and you should be able to find the links to both the Grand Master list, which will include 52 at the time of this episode coming out, as well as the individualized show notes for this particular episode. At the bottom of every page on the website as well, you can sign up for our newsletter, uh, which goes out weekly, and I would remind you that we have some additional pieces that go out on, on top of that. Finally, uh, it has come back to us from some listener feedback that it is a little bit more helpful to these episodes if you watch the movie ahead of time or at least have some general knowledge of the movie itself. I thought that might be somewhat evident that you might want, you know, a background on what we're talking about uh, instead of just listening to the show itself. But apparently that was not immediately clear and maybe it was a blind spot for myself. So. In advance of that, I'll be trying to announce a little bit uh, earlier into the episode as opposed to just at the end what next week's movie is going to be and where you can find it. Uh, This week was a little more challenging. Uh, I realized that I kept saying that it was on Amazon Prime, which was my hope because a lot of people have not seen today's movie, uh, at least not as many as I would like to have seen this movie because it's been a high point for me for the last decade of uh, film, but... That being said, uh, it is available on Stars, or if you get the premium subscription from your Amazon Prime, from your Hulu, uh, any of those that basically carries that little add-on of the uh, additional piece of uh, Stars. If you have the Stars app, you can also get it from there. So if you want to watch this movie ahead of time, have the ability to do so, please go find it and then rejoin us on the episode. For next week, we are planning on doing Monty Python's The Holy Grail, currently available on Netflix. And given that there are 200 million international subscribers to Netflix, I really don't think that availability is going to be an issue. So (laughs) you should be able to find that one uh, on your Netflix feed and watch that ahead of time for next week. If you're not familiar with Monty Python or British humor, it's an experience. That's all I'm going to give you. All right, Dad, uh, let's get into the movie. You've said that you thought Whiplash was the best movie of 2014. I think you said that in the last couple of weeks. Why do you think so? The pacing, the writing, the acting, the directing. Other than that, it wasn't that good. Okay, thank you, Mrs. Lincoln, for that one. (laughs) No, I I just, I, I think this movie was so well conceived planned and done i mean miles teller did a very good job jk simmons was just phenomenal damien giselle as the director was just the like i said it's brilliantly done the timing of this film there isn't a moment there well i shouldn't say a moment there's a couple of moments where it kind of drags a little but not much kind of does is he's trying to develop his relationship with the girlfriend Melissa I can never remember how to pronounce her last name is it Benoit yeah 
Well, Benoist, there's an S. Benoist. But even, okay. even so, she's uh, TV's Supergirl, uh, so I do want to put that out there, that uh, she's clearly moved on to bigger things. But I think this might be the one of the few movies that you only have a relationship to it through me. Because I, I know for a fact that I watched this movie first. So at the time I was living at home, I remember this was, I think this might be the first year that I watched uh, every single Oscar nominee ahead of time, uh, or ahead of the awards itself, and actually got all the Best Picture movies in. Uh, it has been a staple of mine to watch every Best Picture nominee, if I can, um, in the year that they're coming out. But sometimes, especially before that, while I was in college, I didn't always have the opportunity to watch some of them ahead of time. This was the last one, and this was the one that was hardest to find. Uh, again, this was based on a 2013 movie, and I'll go into some of the backstory on this one here uh, a little bit uh, in a minute. But I remember watching this for the first time. I, I put it up, or I started watching it at lunch at the office, and it was so hard to go back to work. And all I looked forward to, because I took the full hour to watch this. I literally raced home to watch the last 45 minutes because it was so good of a watch that I then uh, loaded it up and rewatched it a second time before, just because I didn't want to miss out on the continual watch, because this had, you were right, this does have a pacing that is just so, monumental is not the right word, but momentous. It, it just has this propulsion from the first second to the last second that is just constantly propelling you forward and at greater and greater speed, especially the first or second time that you've seen this. And I do remember immediately afterwards saying that you guys need to see this movie because it was that good or that much of an impact on me immediately. So my impression of this immediately going out was, is why is this not a bigger deal? Because it was kind of one of one of those that was somewhat under the radar. Yes, J.K. Simmons was the favorite for Best Supporting Actor that year, and we'll get to it in a second, but he did win the award for that. Uh, this won a couple of other smaller awards and was nominated for a bunch of things, but it was kind of one of those movies that was the afterthought. It was like down the pecking order of the films that got a lot of recognition that year, and there were a lot of big films now looking back on it that were a part of that award season. So do you remember anything about your initial relationship to this? Well, I think it was, again, a film that you told me to watch. I know that it was one that I think uh, I watched with at least your mother. It may have been both of your sisters. And we just were floored because it was so well done that, um, and it made such an impact because, you know, I mean, J.K. Simmons has always been he, he's done those uh, commercials for farmers insurance. He did. Uh, he was in Juno. So he was almost more of a comedic actor than anything. And then to watch him in what I think is one of the more mesmerizing performances I've seen in a film, it, it just was it just floored me. And then. Having watched it again, the only thing I could say was brilliant. And that's, there's just every aspect of this film is brilliant. 
there are three primary claims to fame for him that people might have known him from. Uh, one, I don't think he was huge on the Farmers commercials till uh, a little bit around the time of this, but it wasn't like a big deal quite yet in the same way that it is now. But at that point, he'd been in the first real big HBO series when they started to do more original programming called Oz, where he was a white nationalist or white supremacist in prison. So, I mean, that gives you a little bit of a flair for what he could be. But his other, I guess, famous role, if you will, was as J. Jonah Jameson Jr. in the Spider-Man comics as the cantankerous... um, I don't know, editor or writer, publisher of the Daily Bugle. So, and again, I think he fits that character rather perfectly. So he's one of those that, and I, was he third? Yes, he was third on my list of best character actor performances for this movie. Just because this is so mesmerizingly good, despite how much of a uh, sadistic and hateful character this is. Yeah. Oh, um, did I? And I'm sorry. Did I miss uh, that he was the peanut M M&M? and M? He's the yellow M M&M. and M. Yes. Peanut. Yes. Peanut. Yes. Because the red one is the regular or the plain. So he's done that voice for a long time. So just some of the background on the movie. This is uh, Oscar winner Damien Chazelle's first feature film. Uh, before this, he had been somewhat of a TV writer. He'd been a I don't know if you could call it script doctor, but a guy who would basically come in and be part of a a writing staff, and he didn't necessarily care for that. So he developed this movie, and it's somewhat autobiographical of his time in high school as a drummer. He ended up actually teaching Miles Teller how to do the drum work for this movie because Miles Teller had never played the drums up till that point. Other things to note, this is actually a character based on his high school band teacher uh, and his inability to deal with some of that trauma. In fact, most of the lines that are famous for J.K. Simmons are ripped directly from his memories of his high school band teacher. In addition to that, uh, this was not a movie that was, or you hear often some of these scripts that get passed around town and people love doing them, but sometimes it's hard to find funding for these things. So two of the biggest uh, investors in this particular movie, somebody that was a bit of an upstart, but is, I guess, what you could call a form of nepotism in Hollywood, uh, Jason Reitman, son of uh, Ivan Reitman, who did the Ghostbuster movies. Uh, He had also done, by that point, Juno, so the J.K. Simmons tie-in, as well as Up in the Air with George Clooney before that. And he was an early proponent of this movie. The other one being Jason Blum of Blumhouse, uh, which is now, I don't know if you could say, one of the best independent horror uh, film producers. Kind of Blumhouse, A24, and Annapurna are like the three primary uh, small budget, small studio indie film production companies at this point. So this was one of the early ones that he got some of the backing on that one. But because they were having trouble with funding, they uh, or Jason Reitman actually told Chazelle to pull out about 18 minutes worth of the larger script and redevelop it as a short film that they could debut at Sundance in order to get further funding for the full feature. Now, the first, the short film... He couldn't get Miles Teller at the time who he wanted, but 
uh, he was able to get J.K. Simmons to sign on to do the original short film. The original short film won at Sundance for Best Short Film that year, and the funding came in after that. So this is actually somewhat of a larger production that had a um, involved history. Obviously, Chazelle would go on to do La La Land that he won Best Director for and First Man. He has a TV show currently on Netflix that the name escapes me in the uh, present moment. Uh, and he is going to be putting out the movie Babylon here that I think got bought up by Paramount, I think, the end of 2019. Although, with everything and its production schedules being delayed due to COVID, I don't know exactly what's uh, happening immediately with that movie. Uh, he is one of, I guess, La La Land and Whiplash are two of probably my top ten um, favorite films of the last decade. So he's a guy that ranks high on my list, and that'll probably be reflective in some of my scoring a little bit later. The um, thing with Babylon, too, I, I saw that J.K. Simmons signed on as one of the characters in that film as well. I can't remember who else was tied to that The last project. I saw, Brad Pitt is signed on, as yes. well as uh, Emma Stone had to drop out. I think the last I saw was, I think I sent you something that Margot Robbie was signed to be a part of the film, or that yes. at least was in discussions. So all of that, you know, is obviously good. Uh, Brad Pitt coming off of his Oscar last year, as well as Margot Robbie. So, uh, all right, we're going to try out our new section. This would normally be when I'd give you this uh, tailor-made plot summary, but what do you got for us, Pop? What did you write up? Young musician in a conservatory meets with an overly aggressive teacher, pushing him to try to achieve greatness which he does until it ultimately explodes to a point where everything falls apart around them. All right, so that gives you your basic plot overview. Let's just jump into the recognition for this movie. So we've already mentioned it, that it was uh, part of the awards conversation. This was nominated for Best Picture and Adapted Screenplay. It did win for Best Film Editing, Sound Mixing, and Supporting Actor that we already mentioned for J.K. Simmons. So... What is this movie about? The effort to achieve greatness takes great sacrifice. Sometimes we have individuals who push us. Sometimes those individuals who are pushing us push too much. It's a good summarization. I'm going to use a quote. You know, we like to um, pull out some level of summation quotes sometimes, but... I think this one highlights, because it has so many subtleties to it, there are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. What I think this movie about is about is the toxic culture that surrounds our perception of success or excellence, that people think that you have to do extraordinary things or put yourself under certain levels of pressure uh, in order to achieve. And that we have these weird, toxic cultures that set up around that. I mean, I can very easily see this in, like, uh, the uh, Tiger Woods documentary that just came out on HBO Max that a bunch of people are raving about. Uh, you can see this in, in a lot of different, I guess, excellence or success stories where they're ultimate level of success is achieved through a certain level of trauma 
And I think this is the intersection between those two things. Well, years ago, I was reading, or for whatever reason, it just happened to fall this way. I read three biographies in a row. I read a biography of Groucho Marx. I read a biography of Vince Lombardi. And I read a biography of George Marshall. And I came to certain conclusions, which is many times greatness is based upon some uber focus on one aspect of your life to the detriment of everything else. And in this particular case, he perceives that he can't even have a relationship because it's going to lessen his focus on his craft. Fletcher, uh, J.K. Simmons, believes that the only way he can motivate musicians to achieve greatness is by utter intimidation and putting them into a position where tough love is, I mean, it's way beyond what you would expect from tough love. It becomes. Would, would you really classify? Would you really classify it as love? Well, yeah, I guess. And here's the situation. He's trying to create these absolutely wonderful, you know, successful musicians because to some extent, I think he derives his self-worth through the level of by which he's driven others to perform. Yeah, and ultimately to me, it's narcissistic. Yes, He describes everything in terms of my band, my ensemble, my wins. Uh, I'm not going to start losing. I'm going to do et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, off of all of these things. I'm going to be the person that creates the person. That's my role. And to a certain extent, again, I think you can see that in the relationship of uh, like Earl Woods to Tiger that there are just so many toxic developments of the relationship and that he makes him or puts him through certain levels of trauma because they have this thought that only through putting someone through the fire can you make steel. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I understand the point. So who is your best performer? Uh, J.K. Simmons. Okay, so he's my secondary performance. Why was he your best performer? He just had a presence on the uh, on this uh, screen that was bigger than life. That so it, it became to, or it it became a situation where when you saw him, you knew something significant was going to take place. So I have in my in my best supporting just because I thought there was one other person that deserved best performance above him, but. Almost every part of this movie is him, even in the scenes that he's not a part of. And it's also why I ended up giving him my most charismatic award. It's like he leaves a cacophonous impression on every other part that's going on. Every part of Miles Teller and every action that he's deriving is because he's being directly pushed by Fletcher. And ultimately, he... Uh, whether or not you could say that he achieves his greatness at the end of the film is in direct relation to constantly being pushed and pushed and pushed 
well beyond the capability that you would expect anybody to handle. And that ultimately he also has an internal drive that says, I have to achieve this because this is the thing, the only thing that I want. You said that he turns down or at least uh, foregoes the relationship, the romantic relationship in this movie. But also, I guess, more subtle is there's an entire conversation with his uncle and his cousins about the fact that he has no friends because he doesn't need them. Other relationships and everything else gets in the way of his goal of becoming the musician or what he deems as the uh, epitome of his potential success, being that guy that is uh, somebody everybody talks about. I understand that because to some extent I didn't have a lot of friends in college and law school for that very reason because I was there to overcome the inertia that was being a Duncan. So I understand perfectly well that mentality. In retrospect, I probably erred because it really was not a either a healthy attitude or a correct attitude. I think there is a common perception, I would agree with you, that you have to drive out every other part of your life, that balance is not something to be achieved, that you need to maintain a ultra-focus, as you put it, on your achievement. Ultimately, though, and this is just from personal experience, I've found that the only way to get there is by having a strong support group of relationships that you can rely upon when you have your issues or the downturns in whatever you're trying to uh, eventually accomplish, that only through the support communally can you ultimately get the drive that is necessary to achieve. Now, well, agree or disagree with that, but that's just what I've found personally. And in, in retrospect, maybe that's correct. But I know for me personally, my freshman year of college, I had a girlfriend. I had a bunch of friends I hung around with. And my grades were absolute crap. I remember getting an F back on a test in Spanish class and absolutely freaking out and going, um, I'm blowing this because I'm spending way too much time with the girlfriend and the friends and having fun instead of doing what I needed to because this is my chance. I need to focus on it. And so I just backed out of everything and just focused clearly on the ultimate goal until I was close to having it achieved and then started letting people back in. But you've also told me at least once that your law school experience was just the opposite. You spent the first two years concerned over everything, trying to uh, push yourself way beyond what you were capable of in a certain solitary nature, despite uh, the few times that you'd go out like once a week for, I think it was what, quarter beer pitcher or whatever it was. Uh, but the that was your only set of release. And it was only when you started dating mom and got that other area of your life taken care of that the rest of it seemed to fall into place and your grades actually increased. Yes. So I'm not saying that I'm, or my assessment was correct. I'm telling you 
That was the mentality because you try to figure out quickly if you're in fail mode, what you need to do in order to fix the problem. And so you try to make certain assumptions and that's what you do. And so I can understand exactly the feelings he had and why he made the decisions he did. In retrospect, I think he realized he had sacrificed too much to try to get there. And ultimately, it proved proved futile for him to have done that. And to some extent, that's the same conclusion I have. I, I wish I would have cultivated more friendships in college and would have cultivated more friendships in law school. So I, my point was not necessarily to highlight what your pressure was or to say you were wrong or right or anything else, just to provide that there are two different sides to it based on just your experience and what I know of you. I think there is room for discussion on how much in one direction or the other, because I don't think you can spend your entire life sloughing off and expect to be successful at work either. But I think there does need to be some level of balance between the two in order to uh, raise yourself above that. I think ultimately having the right partnership, the right support group can aid you in your pursuit because those people, if you surround yourself with the right people, can ultimately be a uh, something that spurns you into that much more focus or that uh, help you achieve your goals as opposed to the other way around. Again, I there are bad relationships with friends or significant others or, you know, however. All right, so before we lose the thread again, ultimately, and I would have loved, and given where uh, I have Simmons in the pantheon of even character actor performances, how much I love this movie and his particular job in it, uh, you wouldn't expect, and I thought for sure he would be my best performance, and then I thought about it for a second, and I'm like, man, it's got to be Damien Chazelle. To be a mid-twenties kid who decides that I don't like the stuff that I'm having to write for other people that they designate is the right stuff I should be writing, to go ahead and do that, to figure out how not only to get the funding, but introduce yourself to the right people, and it just seemingly works out. Ultimately, I will say that it's only because of his singular level of focus that this got done and his drive to do that. So in essence, trying to deal with his own trauma from high school carried or spurned him into the greatness that now he has. And so I think there is... Uh, paradoxical nature to this film even being made but you you think about the pacing the editing the cinematography although i wouldn't say that uh cinematography wise this is uh quite as good as his other two films but i mean it is his first feature film so i gotta give him some credits but there are some sequences particularly filming miles teller playing the drums that are just absolutely mesmerizing. And one of the things that I really love about his style of shooting things that he has, and you can really tell this in La La Land, which we'll eventually get to, but he has such a way of shooting color shades. Like early on in this movie, you can see certain shades of green for how the city goes about, and it has a way of 
making uh, moods. Like, I'd love to see his version of The Great Gatsby, given how often I had to, in high school, be told that, oh, all of these colors have certain things, and, um, you know, the color scheme evokes certain emotions. So, for me, it was Giselle. I just, for the drive to get this done, for it being his uh, feature film, or first feature film, for the amount of things that he had to go through in order to get this done, and then how good this was right off the bat... I just think he is deserving of highest praise. I can understand your point. That's why I had him as my secondary performance, because I realize that. And I'm going to be completely honest uh, again. There's a lot. I mean, you haven't been completely honest up to this point. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. All right. (laughs) Point point being made. Or I can't, you know, I mean, I know that. I have driven myself to do what I have for a profession and such because I felt insignificant most of my young uh, life. And, you know, going through high school and such, up until then, I felt insignificant. And so I have basically strived throughout my adult life to have significance, to be something that people admire or that makes me feel like uh, I achieved a level of respect. And so I understand that. Maybe that's part of why Chazelle resonates with me as a director, because I see a lot of that in his work. I don't know if I see that in the other two films as much as this one, but I do think that we have a certain fetishization in American culture with excellence and the drive for excellence. And I think we have a large problem with defining what is or is not excellence. Well, and I think that's a much larger conversation. I think I've found a certain level of uh, health and well-being in accepting that there are certain things I don't need to be perfect. So I had nominated Simmons for Most Charismatic already. Who did you have for Most Charismatic? Simmons. Probably for the same reasons. I, I suppose yeah. we should give him a little bit more. Realistically, this movie is really between two people. I know there are some periphery characters, but they're never really developed. That's not the point. It's the relationship of the drive from uh, instructor and student. And one trying to push the other to achieve a certain level of excellence beyond what would normally be deemed capable, or at least that's his stated motivation uh, in the penultimate scene. With his aggressive tour de force and the ability that he has to consistently yo-yo between things. I mean, he uh, introduces himself and he's somewhat kind the first time that Andrew's introduced to the studio band and then he takes him out into the hallway after he's just blown up at a different student and it it seems like he has this almost two-faced facade that he can just pivot between being the engaging smiley acceptable nice guy and then between the just terrifying rip your heart out teacher that expects this almost beyond capability of what what you need to do in order to perform up to his standards. 
I, I I'm losing the words to describe it um, in the best way possible. But the, you're the, you're reading too much into it because after watching it for the third or fourth time now, just this week, that moment where he's talking to uh, <laughs> Andrew out in the hall, that's him just trying to find a soft underbelly um, that he can exploit, and then from there on, he's exploiting that. He just throws it right repeatedly back in his face. But no, I don't think I am overreading it because they put in small, subtle scenes. Yes, that one was used in order to highlight that, but you are drawn into his ability to be personable. And that's why he volunteered the information, because he, in his normal capacity, has the ability to break down walls. You see it again in that penultimate scene when they're having a drink together at near the end of the movie. You see it when he's interacting with the guy who he apparently has a relationship or a friendship with and his little girl. I mean, there are just subtle things that reveal there's more layers to Terrence Fletcher and his ability to go back and forth between those two sides because it would be one thing if you were just a jackass in your entire character that by itself wouldn't be charismatic i do understand that and especially because you kind of opened up the category a little bit last week when you talked about negative charisma but just the uh, ability to be drawn to people even in a uh, negative way he just occupies so much space in this movie, even and again when he is not on screen. I agree that he has a presence that is so large, so incredibly. It, it, he almost comes into a situation where he is a vessel, and then you're waiting for the vessel to be filled by the action that happens within the scene. You just you 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 have an expectation things are not going to go well and you're just waiting for the moment, whether it's that um, not my tempo, not my tempo and it things just escalate and you soon realize that's exactly where it's going. Well. Before we get in into that particular scene, because I think I have a lot to say on it, let's go into best scenes. So which one would you like to nominate first? Well, the scene that ultimately shows Andrew has uh, drunk the Kool-Aid, the crash scene, where, where he goes absolutely to the ultimate level of what it takes in order to be in the band and to try to meet Fletcher's expectation. And he goes past that. He ends up in a car accident and comes in absolutely battered and bloodied and tries yet to perform. So I don't know if I look at that so much as drunk the Kool-Aid as I've sacrificed everything to be in this moment and I'm not going to let anything stop me. And that's that was a personal drive moment. Because even in that moment, you're coming off of the scene just before it where uh, they had the late night studio session where essentially he tries to tell Andrew that you have to earn the part, that you have to be able to play 
up to my standards in order to get this. And he keeps rotating through the three drummers until the point where he feels like he's pushed Neiman to the, the absolute brink. And then by getting over that hump, feeling like he had earned it, particularly because Simmons does say, you've earned it. Only at that point does he drive himself to the ability to say, this is mine. You know, my confidence level, because I have achieved that that at least minimal status. And for that to all of a sudden be taken away, I don't know if I would say it's drink the Kool-Aid so much as I don't want this to be taken away from me. I think there's a a genuine fear more than there is a drink the Kool-Aid usually um, associates some level of sycophantness. I don't know if that's the right word, but. Well, otherwise you've created your own word. Wouldn't be the first time. Yeah. Sick of fancy? Sick of fancy might be more of a, an accurate description. I kind of like that, actually. Sick of fancy. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, the English language has over 200,000 words. One more is not going to kill it. Anyway. So uh, I'm going to go with the opening. And I think this might be one of the best opening and closing movies I can remember. I remember, and it's kind of ironic that I barely remember a whole lot about high school or any one particular moment, but my freshman band teacher, for whatever reason, this particular saying always stuck out to me. People remember how you started and how you finish. What you do in between, they won't remember. So as long as you start well and you end well, they'll buy anything. And I think this being one of the best opening and closing movies puts it on another level for me because the the way they subtly just bring you into this with that kind of very slow build where he's in the band room by himself and he's kind of just messing around and Fletcher comes in and you already get that off but it's not him screaming yet or the the obscenity or the just sheer uh, aggressiveness the the force the physical nature of Fletcher yet but you even get to see it where you know what what are you I'm first year uh well why did you stop playing and then he starts playing did I tell you to start playing and he's just toying with him already because he's already noticed something in that and it introduces the relationship that is going to define the movie but in such a small way and ultimately it does foreshadow that the entire movie is about those two characters and even the slow building nature of that gives so many subtleties away to how the movie is going to develop that that by itself could have been an a ultimate representation of what the movie was just even in that one opening. Yeah. So what's your next uh, nominee? Uh, the closing, the caravan. It's the scene where they're on stage and he leans over and says, uh, I know it was you. Just that part? Because the that's whole a, whole, thing. a long sequence. It's the, it's the ending itself where... He reaches a point where even Fletcher has to acknowledge that he is uh, better. Well, it's not just Fletcher 
that acknowledges it because you get that really subtle moment right before the last note of the movie where you see him smile, but it's slightly off screen because you only get his eyes and you, you get that menace. But like even before that, he's kind of noticed exactly that he's hit that metaphorical zone. He's just gotten he, he he's finally hit that certain level of excellence that he's been trying to push him to all along. And also Paul Reiser recognizes it in his son. You know, you, you get that close up of him through the um, stage door where it's just like, oh, holy shit. Like, this is what he's been trying to get to this this moment of absolute clarity. There are so many small pieces to the scene from him. So you start off the scene, yes, with him. Uh, I know it was you and then trying to completely throw him off gauge. And he plays the first song just terribly. And he walks off stage. He's been humiliated. He thinks everything's over and he's never going to have another opportunity and that he's worked all this time yet again uh, where it was all taken away from him before that ultimately to get to this point again and to have it blow up in his face in an even more devastating way and then somehow he finds that inner strength to walk back on and say I'm the shit and even though you know we're gonna slow it down here for you now he just starts playing through it because he's pushed past that point and I've realized that to a certain personal experience with that you focus so much sometime on what certain people think of you that you only reach the ability that you're supposed to have or that level of confidence in yourself when you stop caring. And I think in that moment, he was somehow freed from giving a shit what Fletcher thought or that he would help him. And he surpassed Fletcher's ability to push him. And so he became this supremely confident person that not only was he just going to play through Fletcher, he was going to do whatever he wanted because he's the leader now. And he's going to cue everybody in and he's going to do the song that he wants to do. And he's going to play the shit out of it because he's now found that thing that he's been striving for, that certain level of confidence, which is another point in favor of um, toxic pressure that I think sometimes, you know, that suppresses the confidence you need to perform at that level of excellence. That being said, you know, Andrew, what are you doing, man? And uh, don't worry, I'm going to cue you in. And he just plays around it. Fletcher's no longer in control. He's somehow unloosed this being. And you find it, and it just as it continues to evolve and evolve and evolve and evolve, and then they finally start backing down, and it gets quiet, and he starts playing, and you think, okay, he's played himself out. And no, it's part of the buildup that yet again he's going to start right back up and rise to the level where he is now surpassed it again. And just the rising and falling action of that entire sequence, because you get it two or three times, and then that small, subtle half-smile right as he's holding for that last note, and it blows out, and there's the credits. Like, it is such a 
perfect ending to this movie. There are very few movies. I can literally point to it on one hand. The movies that I think have the absolute perfect ending, this is one of them. Did you really use the term unloosed? Yes, I did, sir. Let's just say that... um, The Marlene uh, is strong in me today. Yes, the Oxford English Dictionary will be not contacting you in the near future for word usage. Anyway... I really don't um, care about the Oxford English Dictionary so long as Spotify contacts us. I see. Or whoever wants to buy up the show. (laughs) Okay. Anyway... No, I I understand, and I I follow it. By the way, I also looked it up. Uh, unloose is a word, and unloosed is the past participle of unloose. Okay. I knew it was a word. So from now on, then, I'm going to continue to use tomato and potato. Okay, except then you have to keep up the English accent. Either that, or you have to sound like Satchmo. All right. Anyway, so let's continue on. So as good as the opening is, I think the indelible one for a lot of people and the oft-quoted part of this, and I kind of already talked about one that I uh, had down, but I only have one reel left that we haven't at least, or excuse me, uh, I have a couple now that I think about it, but not my tempo. Yes. And the building of that scene, because, again, you know, you, you think about it, that that scene is kind of rope-a-dope in a lot of ways. They come in, he talks about him being green or the squeaker, quote-unquote, from the movie. And uh, the first song, you know, the guy's out of tune, and he comes in and he screams at him. Then they go out into the hallway, and he's trying to soft-talk Andrew, and he puts him on the drum kit, and he wants to get him some experience. But then... Um, oh, are you, uh, you know, uh, are you, you're rushing a bit. Okay, so let's try again. And he goes through that and he keeps going back and forth. Nope, nope, that time you were dragging. Until finally they start playing through and you think, okay, maybe he's got it. And then all of a sudden Fletcher just tosses a chair over his head. Yes. And it, there's there's this whole um, back and forth nature trying to... Um, giving him a little bit of a break just so that you can apply even more pressure on the next step and just continue to build that whole thing up uh, until, you know, you get that final single tier and the I'm upset nature of it. I I just think it it works very well to highlight exactly what the relationship is going to be and everything else that comes after it. Because, I mean, to follow up that particular scene – that's when he starts to really dedicate himself even further to his craft or that he moves his bed into the practice room and that's that's where he's going to be. So did you have another nominee? It's the scene where Teller and Paul Reiser are at the movies and that scene, and then the scene with the lawyers where Paul Reiser is sitting there listening to what his son has gone through and looks absolutely pained, like he's been stabbed in the, in the stomach. 
this movie is about not just the relationship of student and master. It's also about child and parent because you want for your children success, but you really have a hard time watching when that success becomes pain. And that, those two scenes, and I nominate them together for that reason, Paul Reiser did a very nice job of portraying a concerned, loving parent who knew that he didn't understand what his son was doing or going through, but was trying to be supportive and maintain the relationship of father and son. In a lot of ways, the traditional parentage roles, Fletcher would be in a normal situation, not a, not in the way this movie lays itself out, but Fletcher would be his dad, the guy who's constantly trying to push him to do something else, to not be soft, to, you know, live up to his potential, whereas Paul Reiser plays more or less the mother character, the nurturer, the supportive figure, the one who seems a little bit more understanding, that isn't trying to push him to be that, that it doesn't matter what you do, you're fine the way you are. I, I understand your point, but there's a lot more nuance to being a father. Well, of course, I, I'm saying in the traditional engendered role of that, that would be how this plays out. And so I, I this is more of a credit to the nuance that they shake up the traditional roles by putting it out there. Because it would be normal for Paul Reiser's character to be a mother. And then more or less for uh, Simmons to play a somewhat surrogate father in that regard. Because you've been missing that character. And so that's why he gravitates towards this teacher. And despite how abusive, more or less, that he is, that he's filling that hole in his life. In this particular instance, because he only had a dad, it's not that Fletcher is a nurturing character that you could say that but that strong, almost toxic masculinity force is the thing that he's never really had, and thus why he can accept that portion of things, if that makes well, sense. It, it makes sense, and I understand your point. I think it's, to put it exactly that way, is much more... There's a certain aspect, and I go through this every day because I have three adult children now, and I watch you make decisions and well, do things. Well, adult might be a strong word. Okay, well, you're all of age. By a legal government standard. But just yeah. because I can to buy booze does not mean I'm an adult. <sighs> <laughs> this is exactly playing into my point. You know, and so it's a diff fighting me on it. <laughs> the point being is is that there's a certain aspect of being a father where you would just want to yell, you know, you're being stupid. But you know that it's not going to go well and that 
you can't you cannot effectuate a change you need to step back and exercise a level of diffidence that is necessary that allow your children to learn by their own mistakes and be ready and available to consult, to console when they make those mistakes, which you could clearly see they were making. And that's a part of it I'm not going to understand since I haven't had to go through that role yet. So I understand that there's a certain part of it that will escape me. All right, so my last nominee is Good Job. And it's the penultimate scene that I've mentioned multiple times. It's the dialogue scene. I I think it's probably the most dialogue-heavy scene outside of uh, Simmons basically screaming at Teller or trying to push him and delivering a lot of those lines. But it's ultimately where the two characters find some level of understanding that they didn't otherwise have. And I think it does set up that last scene and plays a really supportive role to how that last piece goes, because at that point, you've kind of undercut, or uh, not undercut, but destroyed, maybe, that relationship. I mean, Andrew tackles him on stage. He's pushed him well past the brink. He's been kicked out of school. Fletcher uh, has been also because, you know, of all of the the abuse and the, the thing with the former student and all of those other pieces that go with it. But these two seemingly, and they're going to have, that scene in particular, I think has several of my best lines nominees, but that's where they meet the level of understanding where they uh, occasionally, and I think this is a, a wonderfully valuable thing. When you can look somebody distinctly in the eye and feel like you have an understanding just simply from human to human, that is an underrated quality that not many relationships ever get to. That you can simply look in the other person's eye and say, I understand and I see exactly who you are. And I think this is one of the rare opportunities. I would question whether they actually did, but the scene leads you to believe that. Maybe it's Fletcher putting on a facade because he, or understandably, cuts that a little bit by the fact that he's setting Andrew up to fail in the final sequence. Ultimately, he doesn't, but, you know, are these two characters able to have a certain level of understanding? And it's also finally where we get Simmons's final motivations. You know, why is it that you've been such a almost emotional terrorist to me the entire time? You know, it's because I thought I could push you to be excellent, you know, and I, despite all of that, I really tried to get the best out of people and really focused in on a few people because there were a few people that had the ability to be that. I could just be a conductor and be the guy who waves his arms, but ultimately, you know, and I brought all these other people in, they were never going to be you you were the one I focused on because you had that ability. I saw that, and I don't know if we'll ever get there. I understand your point. I I, I guess I don't have much to add. I just think that, yeah, okay. All right, so then what was your favorite scene? 
I think ultimately the last scene, the um, the Agreed. caravan scene, because it shows him overcoming all the adversity that he's had to experience for the previous one and a half hours of the film. I would go as so far as to say. So first off, I think it's my favorite scene and it's my most indelible moment because if that doesn't pay off in the way that it does, I don't think I would have ever gone back to this movie. I think the fact that he is pushed and that in a in a way the audience is similarly pushed by Simmons through this thrilling up-tempo, up-paced more or less the the uh, title of the film or uh, title emotion, but through a sense of whiplash that you've been pushed up to this point. And if it doesn't, he doesn't reach deep and find that level of emotion, that overcoming in the end to find the thing that he's been looking for. I think as an audience, you'd feel equally devastated. If the movie ends where Paul Reiser has him just like basically melting into him, that he's so devastated and embarrassed if the movie ends right there, it's a completely different movie. And I don't think you or I would appreciate this nearly in the same way. But the fact that he walks in or walks back in and has that level of confidence and he assumes the role, you know, it, it, it's many ways. Uh, I'll relate it to a similar film that I think more people have at least seen or at least understand. When Neo dies at the end of The Matrix and it's only so that he can fulfill the prophecy so that he becomes the one and he all of a sudden realizes or accepts, believes in himself, that's the moment where he succeeds and all the rest of everything else leading up to that point has paid off. Similarly, you get that in this final sequence. Well, I'll have to watch The Matrix uh, before I can opine as to whether you're correct. Well, since... uh. You know, you haven't seen it before. Maybe uh, we can plan that out before the end of season two. Yes, alas, I have a gap. So what was your most indelible moment then? Well, that exact, that exact thing. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I expressed to your mother not too long ago, I had a dream, okay, that... I have a list. It is Black History Month, so be careful. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. I had a dream where I woke up. I have a list of people who have belittled or minimized or talked about me with less than... Uh, Flattering terms? Yes. And I have this idea of, set, or of preparing a packet which shows... My office, my staff, my tax return, uh, my W-2 included, that I send to them and just go, I'd like you to know that uh, despite your uh, level of disdain that you've experienced, fuck you. I would uh, point you in the direction of a particular How I Met Your Mother episode where they refer to the pit guy. I'd have to remember which episode i'm not in it's later on it was the one where it's the one where seth green did a cameo and then they played off of the silence of the lambs being the pit guy but either way i i I would suggest 
referring to that one before you uh, uh, send that out? I I know I can't. I I just know from experience because periodically these people continue to resurface in my life and they're like a boil on my backside. Wow, that um, does not sound pleasant. All right, but with that, we will take a quick break for one of our sponsors and we will be right back. Welcome back, Dad. Did you get enough of a refill on your dad juice? Yes. Um, this is this is an audio only podcast. Oh, I was sloshing so you could hear. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, so did we lose any uh, notable names this week? We did not. We had a couple of actors who have done some films here and there that that passed this week, but it would be difficult to do an immemorium for everybody who's been in a film. And you did so, object to doing one for Larry Flint, I would like to add. Well, as I pointed out, yeah, well, yes, Larry Flint passed this week. Um... And that's enough we need to spend time on. Yeah. All right. Anyway, uh, so a couple of the upcoming movies. I already said that we have Monty Python's The Holy Grail next week. Uh, Two weeks from this one, uh, we will be having a returning guest on the show. We will be covering our first animated feature, WALL-E, with our returning guest, Roger Walkoff. Okay. Okay. And then the week after that, we're going to be covering another movie from this particular year, The Grand Budapest Hotel, first Wes Anderson movie for us. And then we do have another returning guest on as well. The week after that, we're going to be doing the sequel to Alien that we had for our number 38 podcast. Uh, As promised, Rob will be returning. Rob Conlon of the Recruiting Hell podcast will be coming back to discuss Aliens by James Cameron. Then after I'm that, looking forward to that. Good. Uh, and then after that, you selected our first international feature. Uh, this one might be a little bit harder for the uh, non-diehard film fans, but Seven Samurai, uh, which it would be our first Kurosawa film, uh, certainly won't be our last. And then followed up by the um, Magnificent Seven, which is based on Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. So. That is what we have on tap coming up for the show. You should feel a real uh, proclivity towards Yul Brenner. And why might that be? Oh, I don't know. Take off your hat and check. All right, let's jump into best lines. What is your first nominee? There are two words in the English language more harmful than, or there are uh, no more two words in the English language, more harmful than good job. All right, my yes. first one up. But is there a line? You know, maybe you go too far and discourage the next Charlie Parker from ever becoming Charlie Parker? No, man, no. Because the next Charlie Parker would never be discouraged. Uh, yes, there will be a little bit of... Um, explicitness here in a, in a second with a, a few of these. I have a, a idea, but 
So uh, just to read the longer one, because I was I was nominating a little bit further. Were you rushing or were you dragging? If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will fuck you like a pig. Oh, my dear God, are you one of those single-tier people? You are a worthless pansy-ass who is now weeping and slobbering all over my drum set like a nine-year-old girl. I apologize to anyone who is um, taken aback by my uh, rather uh, harsh and higher tone. But I am uh, portraying it accurately, I believe. I think being the greatest musician of the 21st century is anybody's idea of success. Dying broke and drunk and full of heroin at the age of 34 is not exactly my idea of success. I'd rather die drunk, broke at 34, and have people at a dinner table talk about me than live to be rich, sober at 90, and nobody remember who I was. Yes. Not my tempo. Yep. Uh, I think there is some occasional dark uh, or black humor to Fletcher, but nothing to hear for me uh, would be a funniest line. So I only have one more. I don't think people understand what it was I was doing at Schaefer. I wasn't there to conduct. Any fucking moron can wave his arms and keep people in tempo. I was there to push people beyond what's expected of them. I believe that is an absolute necessity. Otherwise, we're depriving the world of the next Louis Armstrong, the next Charlie Parker. I told you about how Charlie Parker became Charlie Parker, right? Joe Jones threw a symbol at his head? Exactly. Parker's a young kid, pretty good on the sacks, gets up to play at a cutting session, and he fucks it up. And Jones nearly decapitates him for it. And he's laughed off stage. Cries himself to sleep that night, but the next morning, what does he do? He practices. And he practices and he practices with one goal in mind, never to be laughed at again. And a year later, he goes back to the Reno, and he steps up on that stage and plays the best motherfucking solo the world has ever heard. So imagine if Jones had just said, well, that's okay, Charlie. That was all right. Good job. And then Charlie thinks to himself, well, shit, I did do a pretty good job. End of story. No bird. That, to me, is an absolute tragedy. But that's just what the world wants now. People wonder why jazz is dying. And then he finishes off by complaining about participation trophies like every boomer. <laughs> Did you have a final nominee? Get the fuck out of my sight before I demolish you. I can still see you, mini-me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Are you ready for the Stanley rubric? I am. Okay, thank you, Vincent Price. Anyway, Legacy, what do you have down? I thought a long time about this. I have a nine. Is a Legacy? Really? Yes, because this is a film that is going to be one that the next generation, it's your generation, it's the Generation X or the Generation, not X, but what is your generation? The, the aughts. The more you tell, the more you tell people to watch this film, the more people are going to go, oh my God, is this a great film? And I think this is one that's going to be 
I, I tried to think of a comparison. There are certain films through the years that people have said, oh, this is such a great film that was not popular when it was released, but gained following as it went. So I think that's this is one of them. I think the more people who see this film and, and really watch it, it's going to have more impact and is going to be kind of a snowball where it just gets bigger as it goes by. So you and I have plans to do the show for quite a long period of time, and we've got enough movies to keep us busy for probably as long as we want. But here's the thing I'll say. I would like to know what this movie takes on because I'd like to see a few more released by Chazelle by the time we're done with the show and then look back on it because I think what you're doing is projecting ahead a little bit and not where it's currently at. Where it's currently at... Well, I just mentioned this movie to people. Like, if you mention La La Land, I think that one had such a buzz around it and the fact of the weird Oscars moment that it had surrounding it that Chazelle won his best director for it, that it was the best picture front runner famously. And then it got awarded for about 30 seconds before it wasn't. (laughs) And, you know, all of that other stuff that was surrounding it. I think that has a more cultural touchstone than this movie. I think that only film nerds like you and I that go through and watch this or people that actually review films have seen it. And it's not like it's available all over the place. I was surprised. I was waiting for it to pop up on some type of streaming service so that we could even get it because it's just not readily available. That's why I was enthusiastic when I thought it was on Prime. I just don't think there have been a lot of people that have seen it. I don't think there are a lot of people that have had the opportunity to see it. I think that if you, correct, if people saw this movie, I think it would connect to them in a different way and I think it would have a different level of buzz. But It's not one that has a wide release that a lot of people know about. It's one I have to suggest. And so other than the fact that in the near term, it launched Chazelle, it gave backing and ability to three current collaborators or three uh, people that uh, have gone on to make other things and do other things well in Reitman, Blum, uh, and Chazelle. And the fact that it did get some awards buzz, uh, or at least won several awards. So I think there, that has its value to it. But this one's kind of a middle of the road to me. I went with a five and a half. I understand your point. Maybe I'm overstating it. I, I just think you're putting it in the legacy you wish it had. And all I'm going to say to you is, do you know the movie Mean Streets? No. Okay, the movie Mean Streets was uh, the first one out by Martin Scorsese, and a lot of people regard it as his best movie. He did Taxi Driver immediately after it, and to me, this film could be uh, Chazelle's version of Mean Streets as opposed to being his Jaws. All right, you made your point. I did. You still made your scores. So that's a 7.25 between us. What did you have down for impact significance? Seven. Just the fact that it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Film and the fact that it more or less launched Damien Chazelle's career. 
Yeah, I think that was the reason I gave it an eight and a half. I think in the near term, this was a uh, high grossing film for the budget that it was on. And it has some leeway with who it helped spur forward as serious filmmakers. The fact that Chazelle three years later goes on to make the best picture winner for 30 seconds and gets his Oscar and kind of launches him to this next level where he's appearing on uh, like the late show and the tonight show and all these other things that he's created this cultural touchstone. I, I think in the impact significance where we look at it in the five year period, I think it had a big effect on that particular person and what we got out of those characters. It also launched JK Simmons into a different kind of, Oh, he's not just a that guy anymore. I think to a certain extent, people started to pay attention and know exactly who he was, where you'd seen him in a bunch of stuff, but you didn't necessarily know his name. Now he was getting parts in Justice League as Commissioner Gordon, and he was um, getting a bigger role as a, a spokesperson for farmers. And now you knew for the first time that he was the voice of the peanut M&M. You know, that sort of thing where he gets some level of recognition. So I went with an eight and a half and that averages out to 7.75 between us. All right. Uh, for By the way, thanks, Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty? For the whole La La Land. Oh, 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 oh. no, 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 no. He, uh, he stepped back. It was, um, oh, why am I drawing a brink? The Frigid Shrew. <laughs> Oh, away. my God. Oh, wow. Wow. The the frigid shrew. Wow. I, I, Faye Dunaway, it's, the frigid shrew. Wow. character Faye Dunaway plays, she's a frigid shrew, and she just has the face to match. I don't know what it is about her, but, like. <laughs> oh, boy. Have you ever seen Mommy Dearest? No. Oh, watch it. Then you'll come back and you'll realize she's much worse. <laughs> she can be worse than Network? Oh, my God. She or she plays... Um, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. Act, or actress that played opposite Betty Davis or constantly was in rivalry with Betty Davis. She married... Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. Oh, my God. You watch this and you want... <laughs> okay. I think we anyway, have to let's... do this this season. We'll, we'll, we'll put on oh, the yeah, short that, list you, Mommy you're getting Dearest. On me. You're, you're getting on me for Kurosawa. We'll put Mommy Dearest on the short list for season two here. Okay. Novelty, I had a nine and a half. I don't think there are any other uh, movies I could necessarily nominate for the genre of musical thriller. (laughs) Yeah. In Um, in that uh, case, it's a one of one. The pacing, the thrill, and this is the comment. I remember when we watched this a few years back, and I even mentioned this to Uncle Andy this year around New Year's while he was visiting, that... The comment he made when he we watched it with him several years ago stuck with me, that this is kind of like a sports movie, but through music. 
you know, reading some of the reviews or the contemporary reviews uh, in preparing for this, that was what a lot of people were saying. And I think that it was kind of a musical sports movie, a musical thriller, whatever you want to put down, the pacing, the set, the coach um, prodigy relationship, all of those things kind of came out. And I really can't think of another movie that's like this. It was originally categorized as an intellectual thriller or a psychological thriller. But I I think that this is, and the only reason I gave it a half point off is, simply put, you have to use a bunch of other genres to get what the novelty is of this. Like, I don't think the way people act, it's just that you took the style from a different genre and applied it to something else or a different subject. So what was your score? Nine. All right, so 9.25 between us. Yep, I I came to a conclusion that this reached kind of that that same rationale you had, but I looked at it as, um, you know, the genre itself was unique, but the aspect or the subject matter of the film had been done in other venues. I gave it higher marks simply because of the pattern by which it was presented. Sure. Okay. Uh, Classicness, this one's going to fluctuate, and this is another one I think if we revisited this in a few years, that would be very different. And the nature of the toxic relationship the mentor relationship i think will age the worst out of all of these i think we understand it in context now and i think it is supposed to be somewhat horrifying but just the rather extreme nature of it uh, a lot of the language he uses i mean he uses a lot of derogatory slurs and rather engendrified language that definitely is not acceptable in 2014, let alone today. But I think our sensibilities will increase even over time where this is going to be difficult. And I think we've gotten to an even more sensitive place while we were kind of in 2014. I think our sensitivity toward bullying is also uh, there. And as we continue to also further nuance the nature of emotional bullying or, um, you know, I referred to the term emotional terrorism before. I, I think that's going to take on a further example of this, where maybe somebody will um, have a, a different favoritism. What, I know you and I enjoy the movie because it pays off in the end, and it it he succeeds, he gets that moment of excellence. But I don't know if everybody's going to relate to it in the same way 10, 15 years from now if they've seen it for the first time. So I gave it a seven. For much the same reason you came up with a 7, I actually came up with a 6.5 because there were so many gay and female diverse statements that he made through the film that were difficult to listen to in this context where I think even the six years that we have gone from when this film was released to now, I just have a real problem with them. I understand the context and what was going on, 
And quite frankly, I grew up in an age where it was very common. You know, you're crying like a little girl. Oh, yeah. my God. What, what, you know, that was common my age in high school, college. Okay, those were very common phrases that were used as a method of insulting or putting someone down. There are way too many of those that kind of insulted my sensitivity, even though being a middle-aged white guy, I don't have the level of sensitivity necessarily that some people have. So that's where I went with my number. No, I, I think you and I are very similarly on the same page. That this is the way a lot of sports coaches are portrayed. I mean, famously, there's, although maybe not to this extreme, but this is kind of Gene Hackman's character from Hoosiers, just a much more grandiose and vulgar version of it. This is the, like, really negative extreme version of that. But in that movie, the coach is a hero. In this one, he is the antagonist. I, I don't even know want to say he's necessarily the villain, but I, I just think that if we watch this or if we introduce it to somebody for the first time in 10 years, that they're going to have some different sensibilities. Because I think you, you take on the sensibilities of the time and place in which you're watching it. And that's why with this category even exists for us. Uh, rewatchability, I had a nine. This is one that's easily rewatchable for me. It doesn't seem like it's 105 minutes. I think I mentioned on last week's pod that uh, I thought it was a tight 90 minutes. And so I think this is, seems shorter than it actually is because of the pacing. It really doesn't take you out of it unless you've seen it probably a half dozen times or more. But I've put this one on as an enjoyable rewatch on multiple occasions. I wouldn't rank it up there as one of the easy rewatches just because of the mood you kind of have to be in to to watch it that it, it kind of makes your heart race without having to like get up and do any type of jumping jacks and even then the like ending credits kind of leave you out of breath because you've basically been racing with them the whole time but uh this one for me is a nine i had 7.5 um, simply because this is one where I have to be in the right mood. If I'm having a bad day and I'm feeling negative about myself, do I really want to watch J.K. Simmons belittle somebody repeatedly? That's exactly my point. That's the point I'm making. So that's why I went with a little lower number. I mean, it's a film that I love and I think is so brilliant. Most of the time, I'm going to be able to sit and watch it. If I'm thumbing through uh, direct TV and I come to the, the point where this film is, oh, you know, yeah, I'll watch it. But there are times where, quite frankly, I'm going, do I really want to have this moment of intellectual and emotional crossroads? So to that extent, I reduced it. Yeah, and I, I completely understand where you're coming from. In, in a certain way, that's that's exactly where I was going. I, I think you just have a little bit different version of comfort sometimes than I do. So you're, you're going for the Friday, I'm about to pass out, comfort food level. I'm going the 
I'm going to be glad or excited to rewatch this comfort sometimes. Well, you guys make fun of me, and I'll I'll express this. We make fun of you? Yeah, well, my children do, because Friday nights, it's been a long week, and I'm exhausted, and it was not uncommon for my or for me to come home, pour myself a bourbon, sit in the, my chair, which you bought me for Father's Day, which is inclined to make me fall asleep to begin with, and just go to Netflix and watch Bob Ross, because there's nothing more calming than him going, little tap here, tap, tap, tap. Little and then we're going to have some nice trees. Yes. And I would just fall asleep for an hour and a half. No, no. See, the reason we made fun of you was not because you did that on Friday night. You'd pass out on Friday night, regardless of what was on. No, in the middle of a Saturday afternoon, you'd turn it on so that you could nap to it. Like, that's the way, like, middle-aged guys turn on golf on Sunday afternoon to fall asleep to. And I'm so upset that Netflix removed him. I'm sure I can find it again, but anyway. So the audience score on this one was a 9.494%, but 9.4 for our purposes. And so just to recap, we had a 7.25 for Legacy. We had a 7.75 for Impact Significance. We had a 9.25 for novelty, 6.75 for classicness. We had an 8.25 for rewatchability and 9.4 for audience score for grand total of 48.65 out of 60 possible points. Uh, remaining questions. So, did you? What is your first remaining question, if any? Ultimately, what did the the relationship end up being? Which relationship? Ultimately, the relationship between Andrew and uh, Terrence. Okay, that's not the relationship I'd be most curious about, although that is the one that the movie the focus is the most on. What did you have? Well, so from my first remaining question was, is Andrew ultimately successful? Like, you get to that moment of brilliance, but is it, is it a one-off, or has he achieved a new height a new level of which um he can tap into he's finally become what he's worked all that time for i thought for sure that'd be the question that you'd ask because you often ask you know how does the story evolve past that most times i'm not interested because i think the story is a defined amount of time and the the storyteller gets to tell us how much of a view into this person's life but i more or less does andrew ultimately succeed does he become this recognizable musician? That's where I would want to go. Well, I'm old enough to remember Buddy Rich. And I watched Buddy Rich perform. Uh, a lot of times he would come out on The Tonight Show because Johnny Carson was a drummer. Oh. He started, yes. And so he had a proclivity towards drummers. And Buddy Rich would come out with his set, and he would perform with the Tonight Show band. And he would do these just absolutely unimaginable riffs where he would just go off drumming, you know, and doing these incredible pieces. And I probably watched half a dozen of them on the Tonight Show. 
So I remember those. And I, I often wonder whether, or when watching this film, whether Andrew actually becomes, you know, the person who ends up taking off for Buddy Rich. Sure. Okay. But that ultimately, I think it gets to the same question I had. Did yes. you have another remaining question? No. Okay. I had one other one. And to me, it's the one that I've thought about most often because I think the film is somewhat ambiguous to this. And you get the sense that Fletcher has always had some level of, I think the word maybe is control, but he's got some greater plan to everything that he's doing that he's just kind of puppet mastering the whole time. So the question simply is, was Fletcher just fucking with him at the end? Where he's like, I knew it was you, and I'm making you mess up on purpose because this is my last attempt to drive a uh, a nail in your coffin and to pay you back. Or was it a method of him pushing him to that final place where he needed to go? Where the other aspect would his tenacity and his drive ultimately won Fletcher over and goes, okay. You've reached where I thought you were or beyond where I thought you were going to be. And now I have a level of respect. Well, I think he's surprised, one, that Andrew even comes back out on stage to finish after he's embarrassed him. So there is something that would lead me to believe that he is not there uh, or that he, he did this to embarrass Andrew, not to push him. But at the same time. And that's maybe the narcissistic view of this, and this is why I think it is open-ended as opposed to uh, a question that could be answered. I, I suppose I could, if I ever got the opportunity, I could ask Simmons or I could ask Chazelle, and I think it would be a really good question. Is Are we supposed to believe that Fletcher did this with no ulterior motive? He was doing it for selfish reasons, that he was trying to basically destroy whatever left was uh, left of Andrew's career for his own personal satisfaction or it was simply that he uh, finally figured out this is the last thing I can do in order to drive this kid to the excellence that was my entire intent or for the duration of the movie. I think both can be simultaneously true but the fact that it is and maybe I don't even want the question answered because I think it's better leaving that open-ended it's kind of a form of poetry that you can interpret it whichever way you want, but that ambiguous nature, it does make me question. And I think that's part of one of the reasons I do enjoy the film is, is that it doesn't give you that direct answer. Agreed. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else, just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be doing Monty Python's The Holy Grail. It's just a flesh wound, which, as I mentioned earlier, is on Netflix. So please watch that ahead of time. You won't want to miss that one. Please like, subscribe, review, or whatever on whatever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at Gmode Podcast, or you can visit our website that is linked in the show notes of every episode. 
Sign up for our newsletter on the website or email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to be a part of that. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music, our technical provider and distributor, Anchor FM.